you find Acts chapter 3. Uh, Acts is the history book of the New Testament. And it uh, covers about 35 years of history. It starts with the ascension of Christ into heaven. And uh, in chapter 28, it ends with the Apostle Paul uh, in, under house arrest in the city of Rome. Again, about 35, maybe 40 years uh, of church history. We're getting a glimpse of what the church was like when it was first established. Now, in 35, 40 years... You understand this is a church of 120 in Acts chapter number 1. And by Acts chapter 17, it was said of them that they had turned the world upside down. Uh, they filled Jerusalem with the gospel. Um, they spread the gospel all over the civilized world, the Roman Empire. Uh, they took it down to the continent of Africa. Uh, it is said that the Apostle Thomas took the gospel to the country of India. Um, he was actually martyred there uh, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. These were people that, that certainly fulfilled the Great Commission. Understand this, they did it without the printing press or the printed page. Anything was written by hand that they had. When they started out, the New Testament had not even been started yet. It had not been given. They, when they started preaching, they had what we call the Old Testament. They had no social media. They had no mass transit or anything like that. All of the modern uh, technology and all of that that we, we take for granted, they had none of that, but they were so effective in getting the gospel out. Now, in 35, 40 years, you can understand a lot of things happened all around the world for the cause of Christ. Um, when God instructed Luke to write down this history for us, obviously he couldn't write down every detail, every person, every place, and, and all of that. So we have to understand that what is included in the, in the book of Acts uh, for us was handpicked out of all of those people all of those events and places, God said, this is what I want recorded for all of eternity. This is what I want you to know about the early church. So we, we ought to pay very close attention to it and learn what we have for us. In Acts chapter 2, where we were for several weeks with Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, uh, last Wednesday night we talked a, a sort of a, an overview of what that first church was about. We learned in verse 42, they were a steadfast church. Um, and uh, we, we know that they were a sanctified church. The Bible says the fear of God was on them, a holy reverence about things. Uh, they were single-minded and so forth. We'll not go through all of that. And that is just sort of, uh, in general, looking at this church, these were the characteristics. Beginning in chapter three, we start seeing the Lord picking out particular things that happened, drawing our attention to them. And uh, so we're going to start that tonight. Chapter 3 and verse number 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple." who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked in alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. 
And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. They were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. These first uh, 10 verses of Acts 3, we sort of see the springboard into everything that will follow in the next two and a half uh, chapters or so, the healing of a lame man uh, in the temple of Jerusalem. And so we want to take a little bit of time tonight and we want to look through this as we do. We not only want to know the facts, well, this happened and this is where and this is when, but we want to draw some application from it. So how does this affect me? What am I supposed to uh, glean from this for my own personal life? Let's go back to verse 1. Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. Uh, the Jewish day started at 6 a.m. And so the ninth hour is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. By the way, the ninth hour was the exact time of day that Jesus died when he was hanging on the cross. In the Jewish day, uh, the ninth hour was called the hour of prayer. And uh, what, what they would generally do is they would just stop everything and they would pray. There's something about that collective prayer, that mindset. We're thinking three in the afternoon, you know, we're in the heat of the day. Uh, we're in the midst of our work and all of that. Um, it wasn't commanded in scripture that they should do so. It just became a part of their custom that they just stopped what they were doing and they focused on the Lord and they prayed and they talked to God. Um, we, we do not adhere to any any part of the, the Muslim religion, and I'm not trying to be unkind, but you understand that five times a day, the average Muslim person stops what they're doing wherever they are at to pray. Um, I, I've been traveling at various times and, and pulled into a service plaza off the uh, interstate or whatever, and it's not uncommon to see uh, someone get out of their 18-wheeler and put their prayer rug on the pavement and uh, they are praying. Now, they are praying to a false god. Uh, their prayers aren't going anywhere. But five times a day, they stop everything to pray. How many times a day do we stop to pray? Is it that important? Peter and John were going together into the temple uh, to pray. And there they met the lame man. Verse 2, a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Now, God gives us some details about this man. They're given to us on purpose. We know he is lame, okay? That means he cannot walk. We know that he was lame from his mother's womb. This is a man, we're, we're not sure of his age, but we know this much about him. He's never walked as a child, he never ran and played. Um, he was always an outcast. He was always different. He had no future. More than likely, he had no wife and no children. 
He would have had no way to support them because he was a beggar. The Bible tells us that. Someone carried him into the temple on a daily basis. They laid him at a particular place, um, and uh, that's where he begged uh, whatever he could get from the people that were going into the temple to worship at whatever time of day they were going. That's, that's the way that this man lived. That's why more than likely we can safely assume that he didn't have a wife and children. He wouldn't have been able to support them. He lived in a day and age, there were no government programs, there was no disability, there was none of that, um, and he had to live on the charity or the lack thereof of other people. This is a man that was helpless. If he went from point A to point B, it's because someone carried him from point A to point B. This is a man that did not know what hope felt like. Now think about that just for a moment. He had no future. Every day was just wake up, somebody carried him to the temple, and he would be there until they showed up to carry him back to wherever he lived. That's what he did today, and that's what he'll do tomorrow, and that's what he'll do till the day that he dies. Uh, a man in that situation, happiness probably wasn't a real vital part of his life because there was just an absolute lack of hope. We see all that in the lame man. Um, people would get used to it. We know from the, the text that there were people that had seen him probably for years. And you know, after a while, I, I, don't, I, it's, I don't mean to sound unkind when I say this, after a while, people like that tend to become invisible to us to our shame. We tend to just drive by them. We tend to just not even notice them anymore. Um, that's this man's existence. You understand? Now, the fact that God put his story in the Bible for us is a wonderful example of the fact that God sees the most insignificant of us. Where other people might find us invisible, they might not think about our, our calamities, our problems, and all of that. God's very, very aware of them. And God had a solution for this man. That man was about to have a divine appointment that he had no idea was coming his way. Uh, what an encouragement to know that God sees what everybody else has, has learned to just forget about and overlook. We see all that in this lame man. Uh, the Bible says he was laid at the gate of, daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. The temple that Herod uh, had built for the Jewish people was a magnific, uh, magnificent structure. It actually rivaled Solomon's temple in its day. Uh, it was one of the uh, wonders of the world at that time. Um, and, and Herod had, had just built it huge. There was a, a courtyard when you first walked up onto the Temple Mount that was called the Court of the Gentiles. Anyone could go into that place. You could go there to pray, uh, to sightsee or whatever, but it was a religious place. Um, and uh, as Gentiles, we would have been welcomed there. And then there was a barrier that was, was erected that no Gentile was allowed to cross. Um, it was a long wall and it had 12 different gates built into it 
and only Jewish people could cross to go into the other part uh, of the temple where the sacrifices would be made and, and so forth. Uh, is very, very uh, segregated. The beautiful gate was one of those 12. Josephus, the Jewish historian, um, gave the dimensions, the description of it. Uh, it was designed by Greek architects. Herod brought people from around the world in. Uh, the gate was actually made of bronze, uh, and it was kept polished to a very high sheen. Uh, it was very ornately engraved and so forth. And even though some of the other gates included gold and silver and things in their construction, this particular gate uh, was considered the masterpiece of all of them. The beautiful gate was generally the gate that the wealthy people would use, Jewish people, to go into the temple proper where they would worship. So it's not a, by accident this man was laid daily at that particular gate because as someone who was depending on the charity of others, that would be the place uh, where he might have the better chance of getting a little bit more in alms or whatever these people could give. They were generally the wealthier people going through there. So it's not by accident that he was there. Uh, we're not sure why Peter and John chose that. It, the Bible doesn't say they may have been just led by the Holy Spirit that this is where you're going to go through that day. Uh, but notice in verse 3, notice in verse 3, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. This is the longing. We see a lame man, and now we see the longing there. Uh, he needs help. He needs food. And so he actually asked them, uh, can you spare some coins for me? Can you help me out? That type of thing. Probably over the course of time, he realized just sitting there wasn't going to work. He was going to have to talk to people. And so here's this man, um, and uh, he's expecting to receive something. Look at verse 5. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something from them. Um, he wanted money, he longed for money, but what the man really needed was a miracle. But we, we're not sure if he even thought those were available anymore. We see a lot of people around us, and they have various needs, big and small. Uh, we see people, it, it's becoming far more common in, in the, the last few years to see people in intersections holding a sign saying homeless, that type of thing. Um, by the way, be very, very cautious about getting a hardened heart uh, against them. You have no idea what their story is. You have no idea why they are there. Uh, the best advice I can give you is to remind yourself that there, but for the grace of God, go you. That could be you. You could lose everything in a day and have to be out there. Uh, you say, well, some of them are just scamming people. Maybe so, but a uh, whole bunch of them aren't. A whole bunch of them aren't. This man, is, is, uh, he's expecting to receive something from them. And notice Peter's response to this man. Peter, verse 4, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. So you have a lame man, you have his longing, and you have this command, look on us. Everything's stopping. Peter and John have stopped. 
the man is stopped and Peter just said, look on us. Look on us. us. I, I jotted down a few notes. What do others find when they look at us? You are watched. You do know that, right? You're watched everywhere that you go. You're watched when you're behind the wheel of your car. You're watched at the grocery store. You're watched at church. You're watched everywhere you go. What do people see when they look at us? I, I think we'd be astounded if we realized how closely people look at us. Gym time. I was at the gym yesterday, uh, working out all by myself, minding my business. I was in one little corner. Uh, there was a bench there, and I was, I was uh, doing some bicep work. When all of a sudden, there was a young man standing off to my right-hand side. Uh, he was maybe an inch or two taller than I am. He's about 30 years younger than I am. Uh, Well-built young man. And uh, he looked at me and he said, are you Pastor Bish? I'd never seen him in my entire life. He said, are you Pastor Bish? I said, yes. He said, I've been looking for you. I thought, so he watched America's Most Wanted this week. He said, I've been looking for you. Turns out he works with somebody from our church who found out he goes to the gym, the, the, the gym that I go to. He said, my pastor's there. He's there uh, all the time. And I'm pretty easy to spot because I'm one of the few that have a robot leg, that type of thing. And he came up and he introduced himself, found out later, uh, this young man's been asking a lot of questions about the Lord. Uh, he's not saved yet, but he's asking a lot of questions about the Lord and so forth. Now, um, I had no idea that somebody was there specifically looking for me. Now, suppose when he saw the one guy there with a prosthetic leg, that at that exact moment, I had decided to throw a tirade about something. Or that I had unleashed... Um, some, you know, some temper tantrum laced with foul words because somebody took the, the machine or the bench or the weights that I wanted. I wouldn't have known that he was looking, but can you tell me what he would have seen if that had been the case? We're being watched. Peter said, look on us. Are you willing to let people examine you that close? Or do you have to put up a facade and a wall hoping that they only see what you want them to see? Peter and John, um, they, they had no problem with this man gazing at them. They had nothing to hide. They had nothing to be ashamed of. Their Christianity was shining through in every way. We have to ask ourselves, do we have such a life and a relationship with Christ that we even invite somebody to look that closely to us? Keep your place here. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the first nine verses of this chapter, Paul warns us in the last days, perilous times shall come. And I believe we're living in those times. Uh, and he talks about the sin and all of those things that are going to be a part uh, of the last times. But look at verse number 10, what Paul tells Timothy. But thou hast fully known my doctrine. Notice the next three words. Manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, 
at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Paul is telling Timothy, he said, you've known me. You've been with me all the way uh, from, from uh, Antioch and Lystra and Iconium and all those places. And you've seen me in every circumstance that there is. And you've known not just my doctrine, but my manner of life, my patience, the whole nine yards. Um, can that be said of us? To those that know us best, would they say, well, I know your faith. I know your love for the Lord. I know your prayer life. Or would they say, I know your mouth. Yeah, I know your temper. Yeah, I know your attitude. Yeah, I know how you talk to your parents. What would they say, those who look upon us? Peter and John are inviting this man uh, to look on them. And what they saw was not worldly-wise impressive. Peter and John were fishermen by trade. That's, that's how they had grown up. Their parents did that. You would understand that even though they hadn't done that for a while, uh, they still had that, that leathered skin from the wind and the Sea of Galilee and, and, and uh, the long days out under the sun. Uh, later on in Acts 4, they're going to be described as unlearned and ignorant men. They didn't look like scholars. Uh, they didn't have all the polish and finesse, uh, but they had a love of Christ and they had a reality about them that they could legitimately invite this man and say, look on us. And he did so. Now he thought that he was going to receive uh, some money from them. Look at verse six. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Silver and gold have I none. That's what the man wanted. Um, and to a certain extent, that's, that's one of the things the man needed. But Peter and John did not have that to give. I'm sure if they had some coins in their pocket, they would have reached in and they would have helped him out. Otherwise, Peter would be lying to say, silver and gold have I none. So they didn't have any of that, but they had something better. They had the power of God. Remember the, the seven-day prayer meeting? They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. They had the power of God. They knew Jesus Christ. They, they had studied and learned, and after the resurrection, boy, it all, it, it all fit together uh, and so forth. They had something better than silver and, and gold to impart to this man. It was the things of God. It was the Lord uh, that they were going to give there. Uh, sometimes we, we wonder if what we offer to the world is of any value um, because the world seems to be looking for anything but God. But don't ever forget that salvation through Jesus Christ is the most important thing that anybody ever gets. Um, I don't know if you heard the, the headlines. A uh, famous comedian died suddenly Sunday morning. How many know who I'm talking about? Um, Bob Saget, um, that type of thing. By the way, I hate to say this, the man had the filthiest mouth that a human being could possess, a filthy mouth. But I heard one um, person was talking about it when Betty White died a week or so ago at the age of 99.9, two weeks away from her 100th birthday. By the way, she had a dirty mouth. She had a very dirty mouth. She made vulgarity look cute. 
But Bob Saget it, it was uh, reported to have said when Betty White died, I wonder what happens next. I wonder what happens when we die. Sadly, he found out. See, that's the course of all men. What people need is Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we, that doesn't mean we don't help the homeless. That doesn't mean we don't give food to someone that's down and out. That doesn't mean we don't do those things. But we got to understand, when you're passing out a gospel tract, when you're inviting somebody to church, when you're sharing your faith, sharing your testimony, you are sharing that which is most important and most needful to every person on this planet. But listen very carefully. You cannot give what you do not have. Notice again what Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. How can you give someone hope if you're not living in hope? How can you share comfort if you're not living in comfort? How can you share with someone how to have the peace of God when you don't have the peace of God? That's why it's so important that you and I are walking with the Lord and we're consistent with those things. Go back to Acts chapter 2 and see what the characteristics of that, that church was so that when they got out there and they encountered this man, they had something to give again. Going back to yesterday at the gym, I had no idea that there is a young man that has been looking for me, and evidently he's been looking for some time. Our paths never cross. Um, later on, I found out that the young man is looking for the things of the Lord, um, and he's asking questions about those things. Um, boy, I'm not only glad that I was doing right while he was looking, uh, but I'm glad I've got something that I can, can impart to him. I'm glad that there's somebody from our church that's got a relationship with God that's imparting that to him. How many see what I'm saying? Peter and John, were they, they couldn't give him money, but they gave him what they had, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in verse number seven. And he, this is Peter, took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones re receive strength. I have a little outline that all begins with the letter L. There's the lame man. There's his longing. There's that look. There's that legacy, such as I have, give I thee. And now there's the lifting. Peter took him by the right hand and lifted him up. That's, that's a wonderful gesture. He just reaches down to where the man is and takes his hand and he lifts the man up by the right hand. I, I wrote down for my benefit on this, this question. As a believer, am I lifting people up or am I putting people down? Which one is it? Which, what are we known for? Are, are we lifting people up? Are we lifting them closer to the Lord? Are we encouraging them in the things of God? Or are we just busy putting other people down? By the way, it takes no IQ to put people down. It takes no IQ to find fault. A rabid dog attacks everything around it. It takes the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to take the down and outer and help lift him up. See, God didn't call us to point out other people's faults. God called us to take anybody and point them to Jesus Christ who can fix all the faults. Um, there, was that, there was that lifting up. 
Turn, if you would, keep your place here. Turn to 2 Samuel 13. Are we lifting people up? Are we putting them down? Are we dragging them down? You're the kind of teenager that you're safe to hang out with because you'll help people, other teenagers, love the Lord and be stronger in the Lord. Look, if you would, in verse number 1 of 2 Samuel 13. came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. David had at least seven wives by this time. And he had children to, to uh, uh, almost all of them as far as we know. And um, so he had his eldest son's name was Amnon. Uh, Amnon was born to one, one wife. And then he had a daughter named Tamar that was born to another one of his wives. So they were half brother, half sister. Amnon fell in love with his half-sister. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. So he is in love with her. He has built this up in his mind. Uh, but he, he's not touched her. He's not done anything. Uh, he knows he shouldn't. He knows it would be wrong. She is a pure girl. She's a godly girl from everything that we know about her in the Bible. Uh, Amnon shouldn't have been in love with her. She is his half-sister. Uh, he should have just moved on and so forth. But to his credit, Amnon is exhibiting self-control and he has no intentions of doing anything uh, to her for the above-mentioned thing. That's his half-sister. Verse 3, sad, sad words. But Amnon had a what? Friend, you might take the letter R out of there and just make it Amnon had a fiend, whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. He was a deceiver. He was a trickster. He was the kind of guy that uh, could manipulate a situation. He said unto him, Why art thou being the king's son lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Now, if Jonadab was a friend, I mean a good friend, what would he have told Amnon at that moment? Forget about it. Dude, you're an idiot. What are you thinking of? He would have put him in his place, right? Because uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That's what he should have done. Verse 5, Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed, make thyself sick. I mean, really put it out like you are, you are just... Uh, at the end of your rope and dying, when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come, give me meat and dress the meat in my sight that I may see it and eat it at her hand. Your dad's going to say, is there anything I can do for you? Yeah, you know, Tamar always has a way of cheering me up. Could you have her bring some lunch and, and just spend a little time? And that would really encourage me and, and laid it on thick. And so that's exactly what Amnon did in verse 6. Uh, and so forth. Uh, Tamar came in, and you know the, the, tr the terrible story. Uh, Amnon kicks everybody out. He's got his half-sister in his room, and he, he uh, takes advantage of her being stronger than her. He forced her. He ruined her life. He ruined his life because he had a friend who did not lift him up, but his friend 
pulled him down and it spelled, it spelled the beginning of the end of Amnon's life. Um, how many need a friend like that? Anybody? Okay. Um, if you don't need a friend like that, don't be a friend like that. Uh, what's your influence on the people around you like? Do you draw them closer to the Lord? Do they love, do they love their parents more because they're around you? Do they love their church and their school and their youth group and, and, and God's people more? Do they love the Bible more because they've been around you? Or do they, they just uh, get more and more critical of all of those things? Um, again, we're going back to Acts chapter 3. Uh, and we're just seeing that there, there was a lifting up on Peter's uh, part uh, of this particular man. Something that we all ought to think about. We all ought to consider. Look at verse number 8. Here's the miracle. Here's the leaping. Actually, we'll start at verse 7 again. He took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Um, boy, the, the difference in this man's life because of Peter and John, because of what they had to give him. They imparted to him the power and the love and the concern of Christ. And uh, his life was never, ever going to be the same again. It was going to be the catalyst uh, to Peter's second great sermon in the book of Acts that we'll get to next week. Um, but, but this man, he's got something he's never had before uh, and, and so forth. In 1 Samuel 16, you don't have to turn there, King Saul uh, has gotten away from God. The Bible says that an evil spirit uh, would come upon him, and when that happened, Saul would become murderous. He'd go into these rages. Uh, he tried to murder David publicly a couple times, tried to murder his own son Jonathan once uh, at a banquet by you know, spearing him with a javelin. Um, and, and he would say the, the most vulgar and vile of things like that. And uh, so they, they sought out somebody that could play music for him. David could play the harp. He was very skilled at that. And when this evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul, they would call for David, and David would play that music. And uh, the Bible said that Saul was refreshed, and the evil spirit went from him, and he was, he was back in his right mind. When David was around playing that music, by the way, it was harp music. I'm pretty sure it didn't sound like Def Leppard. I'm, I'm pretty sure it didn't sound like any of that stuff. Um, David had this positive influence on Saul's life in his right mind, his spirits refreshed, uh, and all of those things. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Look, if you would, please, to um, verse number 15. I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. Uh, Achaia is the Greek peninsula. His family were some of the first people to get saved there, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. What a cool phrase. They're addicted to helping people. They're addicted to serving and loving other people. He said that ye submit yourselves unto such to everyone that helpeth with us and laboreth. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. He names three different individuals. For that which was lacking on your part, they have, so, they have supplied 
Notice this, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge ye them that are such. What a great testimony. Um, Paul says of these three guys, they have refreshed my spirit. Do, do you have a friend in your life, somebody that when you're around them, you just feel better? They just encourage you. They put a smile on your face. They just, they just have that something about them. That's the way these three guys were. That's the type of influence Peter and John have had upon this, this lame man. He's walking and leaping and praising God. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In the first letter to Corinth, Paul really had to roast those people. They had a lot of sin in the church, a lot of things wrong, and he had to correct them uh, about that. Uh, and it appears that they took that letter to heart and so forth. And uh, look, if you would, please, uh, verse number five. For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforted those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. So Paul said, Titus went to you. Um, and uh, he, he spent some time with you. And when he came back, um, he was encouraged. He was, he was comforted because he saw in you such a love for God and such a zeal for God, such a desire to make things right with God. And when, when, when you did that for Titus and Titus came back to me, with everything I'm going through, I was encouraged by Titus who was encouraged by you. Um, boy, what a way for Christians to be. Peter and John walked into the temple that day. They were going to pray. They had no idea that they were going to have this encounter. By the way, they had no idea that the Holy Spirit was going to tell Luke to write it down as part of Scripture. They were just going to pray. They were going about uh, their normal things. And their testimony, their love for God, their concern for other people was so real that this man's life was completely changed as a result. One last place, turn to 3 John. Just a couple of pages before the book of the Revelation, 3 John. And John is going to write about some people here. We'll just look at verse number 2. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. So Paul is talking to this man, his name is Gaius, and he is just talking about what a blessing Gaius' testimony is. He said, the whole church has testified of, of how you are a blessing to the brethren, the people in the church, to strangers, meaning people that come visit, people that come through, possibly 
uh, other preachers that are just coming through, going to church for a bit, and then moving on, that type of thing. He said, uh, you're, you've just been faithful and so forth. And he's commending Gaius because of the blessing to other people. Look, if you would, verse 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words. The word prating means condemning, criticizing, that type of thing, with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Paul writes about another guy in the church named Diotrephes. Uh, his problem, he wanted to be the grand puba. He loved to have the preeminence. He had to be the big shot. He, everything had to be his way, his way or the highway. If you disagreed with him, he'd just shout you down. He'd just kick you out. Uh, he'd criticize the apostle John, uh, all of that kind of thing. Is he lifting people up or pulling people down? He's pulling people down. Do you suppose anybody was walking, leaping, and praising God in that church because of Diotrephes? Probably like, oh no, here he is, that type of thing. One last person he talks to, look at verse 12. Demetrius hath a good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record. And you know that our record is true. One verse about a third guy in the church, and all we know, this guy has a great testimony with everybody. He's the kind of guy that his influence is causing other people to love God more. Again, walking, leaping, praising God. Go back to Acts chapter 3. This one miracle, this one situation is given to us in Scripture and everything that's going to follow in the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and part of chapter 5 uh, goes back to this one instance. Look at verse 10. And they knew that it was he, I'm sorry, verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. Peter and John's encounter was with one man, this lame man. Um, but there's a long-term effect. It's going to spread out. What God did for that one man is going to affect a whole bunch of other people. Um, let me see. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. We're skipping ahead just a little bit after Peter's sermon. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000 men believed. And got saved. It started with Peter and John walking into the temple to pray, three o'clock in the afternoon, and a beggar who asked an alms of them instead of a snide comment or why don't you go out and get a job? There was none of that. They said, Look on us. They weren't afraid about this man taking a closer look at them. They said, We don't have any money. But here's what we've got, and we're going to give it to you. They had a relationship with God. They knew Jesus. They were filled with the Holy Spirit of God, such as I have, give I thee. Peter reaches down to this man and lifts him up. And the man is healed, 
walking, leaping, praising God. It's between Peter and John and one man, but there's a whole bunch of other people there that day. And they saw the lame man walking, leaping, praising God. They'd passed him for years by the beautiful gate. And they just saw a change in that man's life. And they came to Peter and wanted to know what this was all about. Peter was going to have an opportunity to share Christ with all of them. And 5,000 men, Jewish men, for the most part, got saved. Understand that, that your influence is like ripples in a pond. It just keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps going. That's whether it's a good influence or a bad one. We're seeing the power of a godly influence uh, with these. Again, look at verse 10. They knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, for they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. I have told you of this man before, but when uh, I was a youth pastor in Palmyra, New York, I went soul winning one Thursday morning with a teenager from our church, a young man named Greg. We were outside of the town of Newark, New York, and uh, it was uh, sort of a rural place, so you drove from house to house. It wasn't like just walk down the street. And we came to a blue double-wide trailer uh, that set back off of the road. And uh, it was a rainy, cold morning. And uh, Greg and I went up, and we knocked on the door, and a gentleman answered the door. And uh, I, I just, you know, introduced myself. Hi, my name's Tom. This is my friend Greg. Uh, we're from Heritage Baptist Church in East Palmyra, and he stopped me. Heritage Baptist Church. I know somebody that goes to your church. Yeah, sometimes I cringe when I hear that. Uh, not that day, not at all. Um, he said, that, yeah, I know somebody that goes to your church. His name is Glenn Hunt, man that I knew. Glenn's in, in heaven now. He said, I have worked with Glenn for years. He said, Glenn was without a doubt the nastiest, meanest person I have ever had the misfortune to work with. He had a horrible temper. He had a terrible, foul mouth. He got along with no one. He fought with the boss. Nobody liked him. But he started going to your church. And he is a totally different man. And he looked at me. The man's name was Butch. Butch looked at me and said, can you tell me how to get what Glenn got? He invited us in, sat down at the table with he and his wife, got the privilege of leading them to Christ. The next Sunday, they came to church, and they sat with Glenn Hunt and his wife, Carol. And uh, shortly thereafter, they got baptized. And it's all because somebody, it wasn't me, somebody from our church reached Glenn Hunt. And God got into his life and changed him so much. And those that knew him before saw what God did for him and said, I want what he's got. Boy, living for God's exciting. Do not underestimate the importance of that. People are looking. What are they seeing? Are we lifting them up? Are we pulling them down or putting them down? What are we doing? Are we making that difference for Christ? God gave us that one glimpse, that one event. He's going to build on that for the next couple chapters. Um, but it's for us to learn from. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for...